We're in what I believe to be a very, very exciting part of God's Word. You probably hear me say that most weeks when I get up and open up any part of God's Word, but particularly these early chapters of Acts, aren't they incredible? They're just immense in the way that we see God at work through His people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to pray that we can, I guess, sit in awe again today. So let me pray. Father God, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You so much... Thank you so much for your spirit, that he is here, present amongst us right now, and that by your word and through the power of your spirit, you will teach us again, I hope, and you maybe, or for the first time, of how glorious you are. Help us today to take a good look at ourselves, our desperate need for your salvation, but also the wonderful truth that then we as a church get to proclaim in just how we live the glorious nature of the gospel. And might this mean that many, many, many people come to salvation and sing praises to your name, because there is no other name. And so it's in that name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't let Christians turn you off Jesus. It was a sign I read. It was a sign brandished at the front of a church. It said, don't let Christians turn you off Jesus. And you know what I thought? That's a bit sad, isn't it? Like, I get it. And we all get it. We, and the church more generally, can be pretty pathetic and poor at times. We, as the church, and Christians more generally, can often do that. We can turn people away from Jesus because of of what we say and what we do, how we act, who we simply are. Don't let Christians turn you off Jesus. But it's sad that we actually may feel that way. Do you know why? Because that isn't the picture the Scriptures paint of the church. That isn't the picture of what it is that God wants for Christians to be doing. Don't let Christians turn you off, Jesus, is the wrong sign to have out the front of your church. Sadly, it fits. Today, I'm hoping that we are reminded of what sign we should want out the front of our church. And in fact, the the reality that we probably don't even need a sign out the front of our church if we are doing what it is that we've been called to do. Now today, you've got communion cups, and for those of you who are regulars, you'd be a bit like, hey, it's not the first of the month, Brett's gone crazy already. No, there'll be a moment within the sermon, actually, we're going to celebrate communion. And this first part, I'm hoping to hit home as we head towards that time of the Lord's Supper together, and then get very practical about how us as, or we as a church should be. Because these chapters are wonderful. Peter comes and he proclaims this incredible sermon. The same fellow that only a few weeks earlier was not wanting to own Jesus before a servant girl. And then we see the people's practice at the back end of the chapter. How it is that the church lived early on and should really still continue to live. Not exactly the same, but very, very similar. Because what has happened so far, if you've been with us in the book of Acts, well, Jesus has taught his his disciples. He's prepared his disciples and he promised them that the coming Holy Spirit would be there with them very soon. There is a king, you see, Jesus, and he's made a people and he's called them to a place, this whole world, to then be empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and proclaim his gospel. And last week we saw that the promised Holy Spirit has come and praise God that he has because he does an incredible work, doesn't he? And now Peter preaches this amazing spirit-filled sermon But how he does, that's going to get very annoying, how he does is really helpful for us today. Really, really helpful. And I hope that we get to see that. Sorry, guys. If that keeps going, I'll just grab a mic. His first main point 
we're kind of going to see, similar to last week, is this moment where the Holy Spirit has come is pointing to that moment that was promised long ago by the Lord. The Holy Spirit has come. God has come. And the Spirit, like a spotlight, is saying, Jesus is Lord. Can I turn this off? Is that all right? It's annoying. It's going to just... There we go. I feel like I'm preaching a little different today, but that's okay. We'll figure this out. And so what we get is this wonderful sermon where he at the end says, you're going to have to respond. And I'm hoping for all of us, we feel similar, that we're going to have to respond today. And all of this actually comes from a response that he makes to a question that is asked. Did you see the question? I think actually the response to the question is really helpful for us. The Holy Spirit's come. These guys are speaking in tongues. And what happens, verse 13 of chapter 2, right there? Verse 13, some made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. They look at these people and they say, go home, you're drunk. They think when they look at this bunch, that as they're speaking in tongues, as they're doing all this stuff, that they are drunk. And Peter undoes that because he's like, well, they couldn't be, verse 15, it's only 9 a.m. Now, that wouldn't work quite as well in some areas of Australia. I remember when I used to work at Westfield uh, in Bondi, I caught the train in. And sometimes I used to have to walk past a couple of the pubs and I walked past a couple where there were a few blokes that were definitely at least three deep and it was only eight in the morning. And so it might not work in Australia, but in this context for the Jews, they know they don't normally eat and drink at that time. But what does he do? Does he say, oh, no, no, let me try and explain. No, he doesn't avoid it. He goes straight through that question. He goes straight through that question and uses it. No, they're not drunk as you think. What happens? Verse 16, he says to them, this is actually that moment. This is what the prophet Joel spoke about. You see, he's going to give it all away. Oh, I'll give it all away. He's going, to, he's going to get to a point where he preaches this incredible sermon and in verse 36 say, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's what he wants to build to. And he uses this moment to get there. You see, Peter used a a launching pad of a real question to work through real issues, to, to direct them towards the gospel ultimately, doesn't it? And you'll see that right throughout Acts. If you were to keep reading Acts, you will see it constantly that this is what the apostles do. This is what disciples do. They take a question that people might have and use that to go, well, we live in the real world with real questions and we have a real gospel that has an answer to all of those. We have an opportunity, guys. When we engage with and respond to the real questions that our friends, that our family, that our society has, and they have a lot of questions, don't they? Particularly to throw at the church. It's why we want to chuck up signs like, don't let Christians turn you off Jesus. What do we do with those questions? We've got to listen, don't we? And then we've got to be prepared to give an answer to the hope that we have through those questions. Don't run from them, please. I know they can be scary and difficult sometimes, but as spirit-filled believers, each and every single one of us can be empowered to give an answer with our words, but also with our lives. You see, most of you, well, very few, maybe none since what he's done, will preach like Peter did. It's probably not your gifting, but all, all of us need to be prepared to listen. All of us need to be prepared to live. All of us need to be ready to give that answer for the hope that we have. Because all of us, which is what he's about to explain, have been empowered 
with the Spirit because the Spirit has been poured out on all people. You see that? They're not drunk. The Spirit has been poured out on all people because that's what Joel talked about way back when, when he was prophesying. Verse 17, it starts, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. This is that moment, is what Paul's saying. This moment in that room where the Holy Spirit has come and then everybody's seen these incredible things, this is that moment. This is what Joel talked about. And Peter sees it as applying to the last days. And I want to tease this out for a second because I think this is really helpful for us. The last days. What is that? Take a look at the end of verse 20 as well because if we think about last days, verse 20, at the end he also talks about the great and glorious day of the Lord. He's talking about the last days and then this final day. The final day when the king will come to judge when the king will come to judge, but also take all those who know and love and trust him to be with him. The last days began, and you can see on the screen, began with the first coming of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection began then, and they will end at his second coming when he returns to be the king that all will see. Philippians 2 speaks about that. And God has said, in these last days, in this period between the two, an outpouring of my Holy Spirit will happen, and it will come on all people. Last week, the promise happened. This week, I want to focus in on that all people. Because we currently live still in those last days. But let me me go back for a second, because the all people thing. In the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see times where the Holy Spirit comes. And He comes particularly on prophets, priests, and kings for particular purposes. So He comes on a few for a very particular purpose. But now... It's not just a few, because listen to what happens. Verse 17, this is, this is incredible. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. See? Do you see it? Sons and daughters, young and old, servants, even servants, both men and women. There is no gender. There is no age. There is no class. That, is not a, that doesn't have the Spirit available to them. The Spirit is poured out on all. And that little part, I could, I could spend a week in just this passage, but we, we, we can't because we've got to move on. But the prophecy, dreams and visions, he's taking that sort of in a general sense at this point, pointing towards what's happening right there in that moment. But all people is his point. All people are now empowered by the Spirit to know God and to make Him known. That was the point. That's what the Spirit did through the prophets, priests, and kings, to help people know God and to make Him known. Now you can do that. Now I can do that. Now all can do that with no distinction but one, verse 21. What was the distinction? That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we saw last week, you call on the name of the Lord, you are saved, you are filled with the Holy Spirit at that point. Everyone, all people. But I want to push this hard for us for just a moment because maybe we need, we need to rip that sign down and get on the mission a bit more, maybe I reckon as a church, just generally speaking. Because Joel didn't just speak about this moment, the last days, did he? He spoke about the last day, that final day of judgment. Verse 20. He, in, from verses 19 to 20, there's this incredible picture of the final coming judgment that day. And I'm going to, we're going to preach through Daniel next term. So this apocalyptic final day stuff is going to come back to us as well. And we have to really consider there is a day coming where if you do not bow the knee to Jesus, you are not saved. 
We don't live at that day yet. We're in those last days. And so for you and me, those people who have the Holy Spirit poured out into us, surely there's got to be some sense of urgency knowing that the final day is coming and we are now in the last days, right? We surely want to get up and preach a bit like Peter. And I'm not saying everybody go find a crate, we're heading out, we're just going to go preach. No, there's different ways that God has gifted His church to do this, but that has to be something that drives us, doesn't it? Because Peter will preach. And I just want to flow through it really, really quickly so we get the flavor of it and that we maybe, I hope, respond today afresh anew, or maybe for the first time. Let me, let me show you what he does because he preaches this brilliant sermon. Verse 22, I'll read a bit of it. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. I'm going to have to come back to him saying, you, you, you all the time. We'll get there. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. What an incredible message that is. What is it? It's the gospel right there, isn't it? The gospel. And that moment where it says it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him, the the language used there is of like uh, birth pains. The agony of death could not, there was these birth pains that could not be stopped. That picture is one that's nothing is impossible for this God to have done, but that new birth reality. But also, have you ever seen, wrong question, but a woman just before she gives birth, she can't stop that thing. No one can. That is what it's talking about, how impossible it was for Jesus not to be raised up out of the grave. Man, that is our gospel. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 16, 8 to 11, where he tells us about, well, this whole David thing. What's going on there? Have a look at verse 27. He makes this point, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. This is King David saying these things when he was back alive, back when he wrote the Psalms. But David's dead. How can he say that? You, and, and Peter makes that point. He's like, David was, well, he died. You, you, can, you, know, you can go check his tomb. We got it here just around the corner. Go see. He's still dead. The point is he's talking about Jesus. See, David back then was prophesying about a day when a king would come and his name would be Jesus, where again, all the promises God had made would be fulfilled because death could not hold him. Verse 32 says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. He is preaching this thing boldly. And so then he goes on to quote Psalm 110, referencing the ascension and exaltation of Jesus to show that he's not just raised to life, but he is raised to be the King, the Lord, the one who is above all things. You see, Jesus' death, his resurrection and his ascension prove something. And if you want to remember that every year we do at Easter, if you want to remember that every time we take communion, that is what we are remembering. Which is why when, I, when you walk in today, I want you to get the cup. Which is why I want to now start to head towards a little moment of communion. Because when we eat and drink, we remember this incredible gospel. When we eat and drink, we remember that Jesus is Lord. That his death, his resurrection and ascension proves something. But we must acknowledge, if we want to eat this meal properly, that you, that me, that those people there that day, They, we, killed Jesus. Come to church. Brett will tell you you killed someone. That's nice, isn't it? Think about it. We'll have a look what he says. 
He says it right there, verse 36. You, so, you know, let Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He says it twice, actually. He said it in verse 23. Remember I said, you, you, you? There's an issue here, though. I don't know if you, were here, you weren't maybe here with us last week, but you might have caught up on the podcast. Do that every week if you can, if you miss, the, miss a sermon. We heard that it was Pentecost. And so Pentecost was Pentecost before it was Pentecost. So Pentecost was this festival that like Mother's Day, like Father's Day, Christmas, the whole family would come back. So there's a lot of people who are in this city who weren't there when Jesus was crucified. So how is it that they were the ones that killed Jesus? Well, have a look again at verse 23. Because verse 23 said, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. See, it was God who planned it, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God's plan, God's purpose, but the collective responsibility of humanity is on view here. You see, Jesus went to the cross for their sins, for your sins, for my sins. There was no other reason why he had to be upon that cross. It was God's plan that he would die for sinners. As Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died. So that past sins, present sins, future sins could be paid for. All of humanity has fallen short. That's why that sign kind of fits. All rejected and continue to reject him as king if it isn't for the saving gospel. And so our collective rejection of the king, that is what cut the people to the heart when they heard this because Peter preaches it and they are cut to the heart and asked to receive the forgiveness of sins and that is available to all people. We know that if we call upon his name, but we have to know our responsibility in it to do that right. We have to know that to then be saved because we must be saved from from something by our Saviour King, our sin, His death. And so I have no idea I'm going to open this at the same time as holding a microphone, but one of you will open up your communion. If you've never experienced this wafer before, it's an experience. You see, when we eat this bread representing the body of Jesus and we drink this blood representing the blood that was spilt be the forgiveness of sins, we remember that this Jesus, what does it say verse 36? God has made this Jesus, whom you and I crucified, put to death, both Lord and Messiah. So we remember Jesus is Lord. And if we eat believing that he has died for our sins, we can scream Jesus is Lord with a wonderful, wonderful joy in our hearts. So why don't you eat? and drink remembering. And as you finish, why don't you turn to the person next to you and just say, Jesus is Lord. And like, as you mean it, because come on, like Jesus is Lord is not a small thing. Come on, let's say it. Jesus is Lord. Yes. Thank you. Amen. Maybe I'm getting more and more like that. Anyway, 
Don't let Christians turn you off Jesus. The very things Christians are devoted to, we're about to see should actually draw people to Jesus. And we've already prayed for that today, haven't we? And I want to show you in these last few verses of chapter 2, now that you're all fed and full, <laughs> what it is. And I've done the first half, so I've now got 30 minutes from here, right? No. Verse 42 and to verse 47, I want to show us what it is that they were devoted to. Have a look at verse 42. Well, can we go to verse 42? Sorry, I've stuffed up there, Tegan. Thank you so much. Verse 42, what does it say? They devoted themselves. So in verse 41, we see that 3,000 were added to their number. As I said last week, I'd take three every week, but 3,000 would be epic, wouldn't it? They, these bunch of people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's the stuff they devoted themselves to. Three things. Well, there's four there, but I'm going to squish them into three. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. I'm going to sum them up in teaching people prayer and praise, all right? And last week, if you were with us again, I said I laid some foundations with the, the descriptive realities and the prescriptive realities in the Scriptures. So sometimes things are prescribed, you have to do it this way. Other times it's just describing the way it was done and we have to figure out, well, what then does that mean for us as we practice living in the way of Jesus? Today we see the prescriptive not quite, but there's definitely things that should continue through these practices that they had. And so let's have a look. Teaching, people, prayer and praise. Start with teaching. What did they devote themselves to? Have a look in your Bibles. To the apostles' teaching. This was the authoritative word teaching of God. How did they actually do that? Well, the apostles were with them. You know, that, that bunch of disciples that had seen Jesus, they were there and they would tell them what it is that Jesus had said and done. How do we do it? How do we do the, uh, approach the apostles' teaching and all that it is that God has said to us? Through God's Word. It's why I get so excited about this thing. It's why I want you to bring it with you every time you come. They would meet together. Remember, these are brand new Christians. All of them are brand new Christians. Not The leaders themselves have only just become Christians a few weeks ago. And what do they do? Well, they dug in. You know that? Have you ever noticed that about a new Christian? They dig so deep into God's Word and to God's truth. I had this mate, Will, who became a Christian through a course we were doing back at Nauwee. And he was a father. He he worked worked in a printing press. When he became a Christian, he just devoured God's Word. He thirsted after it. And he started these little reading programs and he would give me little uh, messages when he was going through it. And what was kind of confronting and shocking to me was he was just outgunning me left, right and centre with how he was devouring God's Word and thirsting after it and being so excited about it. That's what new Christians are often like. But guess what? That's what all Christians should be like, isn't it? Every single one of us should want to dig in and get as much out of what it is that God has to say to us. And did you notice that the authority of the apostles was actually bolstered in verse 43? I'll read it for you. It says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That bolstered their authority that people are like, yeah, what they're teaching must be from God. Everyone was filled with awe. Ultimately, not what the apostles were doing, but what God was doing through His Holy Spirit in His people. That happens to us still, right? Like we are, as we are taught, as we learn of what God has done in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, as we see what His people are doing, we're left in awe at our God, right? Maybe. See how these people 
live as all-filled disciples. All-filled people are awfully lacking, I think, in churches today. I'm not here to start throwing mud and sticks, but watch this bunch, please, and get inspired and awe and joy that permeates their lives. They know the wonders of their God and they are devoted to the apostles' teaching and for that reason, to fellowship, to people. Have a look again, verse 42. What were they devoted to? To the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Now, some disagree here what, whether this breaking of bread refers to what we just did then, like the Lord's Supper, whether they were doing that, because it has a little article at the beginning, was it the Lord's Supper? But if you just jump down to verse 46... Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Both, I believe, can be present here. So we have the formal Lord's Supper sort of reference and then just eating and drinking together. Can you see that this is part of our praise? That this is part of our worship? Fellowship is an important thing for the church to be doing. But that word, it often gets, I think, misused. You know, let's have a little bit of fellowship together. It becomes quite um, tepid, lame, falls short. Luke tells us something so much more. Yes, the people ate together and met together, and it is probably the place that scones, jam, and cream were created, but it's so much deeper, and there's so much more to this, because look at verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. That's not that they wore the same tracksuits, had the same haircuts. It's that they had a common unity They sold property, they sold possessions to give to anyone who had need. I reckon how they lived makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? In an individualistic age and often in a closed circle community where we keep just the people we need or want around us, this fellowship is confronting. Devotion to people looked like selling what you had to give to anyone who had need. And they did this together because of the one spirit, the one baptism, the unity that the scriptures speak about. And they did this because it proclaims the gospel. Remember John 13, 35? We only did that a few weeks back. By this, they will know that you are my disciples, how you love one another. The Lord of the Rings has had a recent resurgence because it came out on one of the streaming sites, didn't it? And so I don't know if you know the Lord of the Rings. If you've read the book or watched that first movie, you know the first movie? Or the book? It's this story of a fairly random bunch of people that come together, pulled together for a mission. You've got all classes and types, all sorts of people from Middle Earth, from hobbits to the elves. You've got dwarves and then even a would-be king amongst them. And what do they do? They lived willing to give for one another, willing to defend and journey, willing to bleed, even to die for one another. And what do they call them? Oh, I mean, they also ate and drank and sang and had a whole heap of fun together. Of course they did. What did they call them? The Fellowship of the Ring. You know why? Tolkien was a Christian and he got it. It wasn't about a cup of tea, some scones or hanging out just on a Sunday. It's deeper. Deeply committed to the mission. Deeply committed to one another. And so before I read verse 45 again, Let me just emphasize, um, this ain't communism and I'm not going to have like a sign-up form for you signing over all your stuff, but real community. Verse 45, what did it say? They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. That is church fellowship. They're so devoted to one another that no needy person, verse 34 it says, no needy person was among them in chapter 4. 
They would sell their own stuff to make sure of that. And it's not forced, it's not communism, but voluntary because they were still meeting in each other's homes. So they owned property and Ananias and Sapphira in a couple of weeks when they sell their property, it says it's, they have it, it was their own and they chose to not give. This is not saying we're dragging stuff from people. And I know this is hard. This is hard in our individualistic age. It is hard to give, but it's also hard to receive, isn't it? I hate receiving. I remember when I was at college, I got, a, I got the flu and I was going to the chemist to get some tablets. I don't know exactly what I was getting, but I remember what happened next because I got back into my little car and backed into a very expensive BMW. Yeah. And then sat in the car and wept for a little while because, <laughs> because I had a head cold and then I had a big financial cold behind me because whilst we were at college, we thought it was really wise because we couldn't afford to have any sort of comprehensive insurance. And we knew the cost that was coming. And just in chatting with some of the people that I lived with who were also at college, they found out about this. And one of my mates came up to me and said, hey, mate, don't worry about it. We've talked throughout the whole community that lives here. And we're just going to pull some money together and we'll pay. Just tell me how much it is and we'll pay for whatever the claim is. What was my first reaction? Get stuffed? Like I said, no. I, I did this. This is my problem. I'll figure it out. And I was embarrassed about the thought that somebody would support me and like, because I was receiving but they persevered and he quoted some scripture at me about how some of this sort of gear goes on and it was a wonderful chance for me to receive the wonderful ministry that the church has. But it's hard to receive, isn't it? Particularly when we believe we are self-made and need to be self-funded and look after ourselves. But that also means sometimes it's hard to give because we do believe each individual should be able to take care of themselves in our society. Yes, we want people to be responsible. I'm not saying youth and young adults can just keep growing up in ways that aren't responsible, but people are, people will be needy at fault or sometimes no fault of their own. And guess who God has designed to take care of those needs? The church, not the government, the church. We care deeply and so we share deeply, don't we? And how we do this is going to be expressed in simple and complex ways. We're doing it when we give to the main mission appeal. We're doing it when you give on a normal communion day when we have the care fund. Praise God for the way you guys do that. I'm so encouraged by that. We do that when we have meals and we make sure those meals are shared throughout our community. We do that with visitations, with text messages, with little things, those moments of encouragement. But to do it, we also need to get smaller. Because you won't know, most people won't know each other well in this room to know that there's a need. And I please don't after the service just start walking up to people going, hey, are you needy? Because we want to meet your need. Because that would just be weird. We've got to figure out how. And so that's why I push connect groups. We need to meet together in a way that we know each other. I remember there was a girl in one of our older connect groups, they were called home groups back at now. Um, no, this was back in Petersham days. She was a violinist and she had her final, um, what do you call it? Performance, recital? Anyone help her brother out? Exam-y thing? Yeah, let's just go performance. And she left her very, very, very multi-thousand dollar violin on the train. And when you leave it on the train, it ain't probably coming back. And she was devastated and she was so upset within our group and so we tried to pull some money together and find a way that we could get her at least something so that she could then do her performance and she was so thankful for that but she hadn't shared that with anybody and it'd been a couple of days but then coming to group she then felt the safe space and the need could be expressed 
We've had that happen where there's monetary needs, where there's other sorts of needs. See, when I look at the church, and I hope this isn't true for us, when I look locally, yes, but even just globally, the needs that are within even just the church communities, the, and then I look and I, and I see the affluence and the comfortability that most of us function with, there has to be a rebuke here for the church generally, doesn't there? Our bond is created by the one Spirit, the one baptism, the one Lord, who is willing to give His own life for you and me, the needy ones. Trade all the riches of heaven for my desperate need. We reflect that in fellowship, which is also why we are a people who worship, who praise and who pray. And we haven't been able to sing these last couple of weeks and it has made me very sad because these passages should really bubble up like that, shouldn't they? But prayer and praise are present too. Verse 42, the final one, the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, we've expressed this tonight. We broke that silly little wafer. We've shared in the Lord's Supper. So that was an expression of what it's talking about. And we have prayed as a community. Then after the service, there's going to be some people down the front that if you feel the need for personal prayer for anything going on in your life, they'll be available to pray for you. And it's something we want to do here regularly. But look again at verse 46. Verse 46, what does it say there? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. You see, there is a formal and informal element to this, isn't there? I said before, you've got the, like, the Lord's Supper, but then there's just the, we're meeting in homes. We need to do both. It's important that we do these things that we're doing today, that we gather together and praise, that we gather together and pray together collectively, that we break bread, that we celebrate and remember the Lord's Supper. But let me press again. This can't be it. The picture is not this setup. And it's not, well, it can be partly this setup, but it can't only be this setup. This is an expression of what we read about. But to reduce church down to just this each Sunday, that would be devastating, wouldn't it? Think about all the rest you're missing out on. This should permeate all of our church meetings. It is so clear that the early church was not simply committed to learning and being so preoccupied with worshipping together that they forgot the rest of the world, that they weren't just committed to their holy huddle. They witnessed, and verse 46 tells me that, because the temple structures were done with. They didn't need to go to the temple anymore because Jesus had fulfilled that, but they still were committed to their people. They knew that all people needed to hear the gospel. That is the picture of the church when it is empowered by the Spirit. All people, all witnessing, all the time. Don't let Christians turn you off, Jesus. Come on. See, the Holy Spirit is a missionary God. He creates a missionary people. He creates a missionary church. Every one of us. Remember, all people have been empowered with that spirit. So we can't be spectators. And I know that's weird when you're sitting in an auditorium space. But we can't simply be spectators. Verse 47 doesn't give us that out. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And how exciting is this verse? And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. How about that verse, huh? Come on. Now, that's not a promise. It was a particular moment where God was doing an incredible thing, but it gives me hope, who desperately wants to see people added to our number who are being saved, because that same empowering God is empowering 
the same sorts of people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See that? The Lord does it. He saved and then added them. They became part of the community daily because they were consistently doing this thing. All people, all witnessing, all the time. I have to say, a spectator culture will kill us. It will certainly kill the church because a few can't do this. If you think Brett and a few others can make this thing work, you'll be wrong. We're not meant to do it alone. As all the people were seen and heard, it created opportunities, didn't it? As all the people went out doing this. And I'm not scared of that happening because when the Spirit empowers His people, He is going to do this thing. And the Spirit has been poured out on all people. So let Christians point you to Jesus. There's a sign. I want to be able to display that sign out the front of our church, at the front of this building, that we are a church who with all people filled, and this is a sign, because they call on the name of the Lord Jesus, are devoted to God's teaching, His people, prayer and praise, all people, all witnessing, all for His glory. It's going to be a long sign. We don't need it. If you are that sign, if you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, become that spotlight to a world who desperately needs to hear that glorious gospel Peter preached that day. Can we do that? I hope so. I'm going to pray that we might. Band's going to come up and sing. And then after that, we're going to see if some people need any prayer for some things going on in their lives or to promote the wonderful and glorious gospel in this area. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for Peter's sermon that you, by your Holy Spirit, empowered him to preach this powerful message that we continue to celebrate and know today. Thank you, Lord, that you took our sin, our guilt, our shame, and that you have saved us. So if we call on the name of Jesus, we know that today we can be saved and today we can be filled. And for those of us who have done that forever, or feels like forever, we thank you and praise you all the same. And Lord, I ask that you might make Menai Baptist Church a church that devotes themselves to your word, to your teaching, that we then have real fellowship, that we devote each ourselves to, to the people of the church, that we are then a people who pray and who praise, that the world looking in might go, wow, there is something about those people that's different. And then ask us some questions and then make us ready to give answers for the hope that we have because the hope we have is glorious, Lord, because it's in you. And so we pray this in the powerful, risen name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.